Welcome to the Comics Course, a podcast offering by Miskatonic University's Remote Education Program, offering Literature 209, Graphical Literature and Society and History. I am your Professor Hamby, accompanied by my TA, Rowan. Say hello, Rowan. Hello, Rowan. If you have comments or questions, I'm on Twitter as Prof Hamby. That is P-R-O-F-H-A-M-B-Y. Let's get class started. Class is in session. Alrighty then. It's been a long week, folks. But we're back to talk about Sandman, the third <clears throat> arc, Dream Country. I say <clears throat> arc uh, because there's no such thing here. This isn't a story. It's four individual issues. And... You know, before people go, oh, well, but it's named Dream Country. It's designed at it. That's all bullshit. It's all. Dear God, what has the engineering department done this time? It's best not to ask. Never. That's the quad out there. Man, the groundskeepers are going to be pissed. When are they not? They're my friends. The custodians and greenskeepers of Miskatonic University. I've long watched my back and I got theirs. That doesn't mean they're not moody. Because they're the oppressed proletariat (laughs) ruled by the bourgeoisie academic elite of which I'm not one because they won't give me my fucking degree. So for now, I stand in unity. But, as I was saying... Originally, when this stuff was printed, they really didn't have an idea of this huge trade paperback market like we do today. We've talked about this a bunch of times on the podcast. But Preludes and Nocturnes was not the name of the original arc. I mean, it was definitely an arc, but it wasn't called Preludes and Nocturnes. That was a title they really came up with when they created the trade paperback. Doll's House was a very obvious name for the second arc. This was issues 16, 17, 18, 19. Or whatever the issue numbers were. I don't recall. So there wasn't an idea that they were any kind of arc, nor that they needed to be. Just because most of the series was written in arcs, there wasn't an idea that this needed to be an arc. So why is it collected as Dream Country? Because they sell books at set price points to make them as accessible as possible in stores. And if they split this up and threw two issues at the end of Dream Country and two into the next one, they miss out on selling a whole other book. So instead, a lot of the collections have been these four, which is the shortest of the collections for Sandman, and have often thrown some extras in there, such as there is a co-penned Matt Wagner and Neil Gaiman story where Wesley Dobbs, the Golden Age Sandman, intersects with the Uh, Order of Ancient Mysteries, which imprisoned Morpheus. There is a short that was included in a compendium, uh, a sort of uh, vertigo sampler for people when they were promoting the titles called Fear of Falling. And these are often bundled with it to kind of give it a little more heft and not seem so short. I do want to point out this cover, just like many of the covers are beautiful. Uh, I'm using the Sandman Omnibus. Most of the Sandman collections include all the covers in a very prominent way. 
And for good reason. They're just gorgeous. In fact, apparently, Karen Berger had to be convinced that the covers did not need to be immediately representative of the titles and did not need to include Morpheus on them. Very non-traditional titles. Now, if you are reading the omnibus, uh, I did not mention it, but at the end of the first omnibus, there was the uh, Matt Wagner, Neil Gaiman story, and at the beginning of the second one is Fear of Falling. I'm, not, I'm just going to skip past those. Uh, I think Fear of Falling is just kind of a throwaway little short story that Neil Gaiman put together quickly. And I really like the Matt Wagner, Neil Gaiman one, but it doesn't fit into the larger Stan Sandman storyline or themes. It is, however, Pulp Noir with Wesley Dobbs Sandman and will definitely come into play if I ever get around to uh, covering in the class Sandman Mystery Theater. Now, if you have watched the TV show of Sandman, you have seen half of what I'm going to talk about here. So, I do feel it is necessary to include some trigger warnings. Uh, this collection does include the stories Calliope and Dream of a Thousand Cats. Both were well done in the show and included an animated version for Dream of a Thousand Cats, which I thought was done beautifully and carefully borrowed the style of the art from the comic issue. It was beautiful. But... There, there are multiple trigger warnings to be had here. Three of the issues in this have their own distinct trigger warnings. And I'm going to go ahead and talk about those trigger warnings here up front for anybody who wants to bail on this, because I would not blame you. Dream of a Thousand Cats has violence against animals, specifically mm -hmm. kittens. It happens in a way where it's not graphic, but if you tend to be somebody empathetic towards animals, as I tend to be, it is still nonetheless very upsetting. And certainly if you have lost a loved one recently, uh, a pet, I don't... Maybe come back to this episode of the class at a future time. And that's okay. Uh, Calliope includes sexual assault. And they actually made that less prominent in the TV show. It does not happen entirely off screen in the comic, however. Oh. And the guy is even less sympathetic in the comic than he is the show. And he's not terribly sympathetic in the show. No, I felt no sympathy. And then there is a final story called Facades, which trigger warnings for suicide and depression. Um, so there you go. Sexual assault, uh, animal cruelty... Suicide and depression. Those are your trigger warnings. If you do not feel comfortable with these, it's okay to bail. I don't blame you. Mm -hmm. I'll see you around when I see you around, all right? So let's jump into it. The first one is Calliope. Now, the context has changed a little bit, but it very much follows the show if you've seen that. We have an author, Richard Maddox. He's published a book. They even keep the titles the same. Mm. He gets a Bezor from somebody to trade to Erasmus Fry in exchange for Erasmus telling him that he has a way to give him writer's inspiration, to beat writer's block. Uh, 
Erasmus Fry, played in the TV show by an always brilliant, and I am choking on the name of the actor. How am I choking on him? All I can think of is his cad file, because that's my favorite role of his, <laughs> as the detective monk cad file. Anyway, great actor. Uh, his name will come to me in a little bit. And what Rick Maddock, as he rebrands himself as, finds out is that the way to get infinite writer's inspiration is to be in mystic possession of a muse. A humanoid, or at least in human shape, uh, divine entity who is a daughter of Zeus, Calliope, the youngest of the nine muses who were tasked in Greek mythology with granting inspiration, uh, her specifically to writers. And here you can see that, unlike in the TV show, they don't even give her a slip. She's just kept naked like an animal. Mm-hmm. And wherein the TV show, he attempts to woo her and attempts to impress upon her until he receives repeated calls uh, about, you know, being in danger of forfeit of contract. Here, he just takes her home and immediately rapes her. Mm. Like, all right, it's raping time. Uh, it's really hard to have any form of sympathy for him whatsoever in any way or shape whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And the events follow follow the show very well. The books, the reception, his, uh, you know, deciding to direct his own movies, all the pretentiousness. She does get some clothes eventually. They look like his discarded undershirt and underwear. And Morpheus intervenes and gives him an abundance of ideas until it drives him insane. Until Calliope asks Morpheus to take it away. Except Morpheus doesn't tell her that when he takes it away, he takes away all of his ideas. So Morpheus decides, Calliope may have forgiven you, but I haven't. And their conversation is very much the same. That Morpheus's time has changed him. She says that the Morpheus before would have left her to rot. And that may well be true. Now, we're going to go through these, uh, and we're going to talk about some themes in them. And I'm going to go ahead and jump into that right now, the themes. Now, I would argue there are three major themes that come out in these four issues. Now, you may well ask yourself, but Professor Hamby... You said these were written as individual issues. How can they have unifying themes? Well, I didn't say they had unifying themes, but they do have themes in common. And given that he was writing them in a series, in serial sequence, it's not surprising that he had some common sort of thoughts in his head. Right? hmm Now, theme one, I would argue, is things don't have to be real to be true. And there are several ways to look at that in the context of Calliope. Be, but one of them that I think is really important here is the dehumanization, the objectification of Calliope. Mm-hmm. Now, I find that when we talk about literary analysis, or, or even just in our culture, objectification is a word used wrong a lot. Somehow people have come to believe that the word objectification means to treat poorly or to sexualize. 
that's not objectification. Look at the root word, object. Objectification is when you treat somebody as an object. That doesn't have to be sexual in nature, although that is often how it comes up. But anytime you are taking away someone's humanity and agency and they are treated as merely a thing, that is objectification. That is what happens to Calliope. She may be a divine entity. She may be the daughter of Zeus, but she obviously has a very human form. She obviously has very real emotions. Her agency's taken away. She can't control where she goes or what she does. And she's treated as subhuman. She is literally raped just to get inspiration. That is objectification. She's a tool that is being used. And she is not actually human, but she is. It doesn't have to be real to be true. She doesn't have to be a real human for it to be true that she is human, that she has human feelings. It shows up very differently in some other stories here. The second theme, I would argue, is the power of dreams to inspire. Now, that is central to this story. Because what Richard Maddox wants is inspiration. That is literally why he and Erasmus Fry do these horrible, horrible things, keeping Calliope a slave and abusing her for 60 years. Because they want inspiration. They don't want to be subject to the process that creative people go through. They want inspiration on demand. Mm -hmm. And then the third theme is that the goal of creation is to be remembered. We see this with Erasmus Fry. He's, even though he wrote these great novels, even though he was celebrated, his, what he considers his greatest work, Here Comes a Candle, is out of print and forgotten. And Maddox probably will be too. And there is some, you know, sort of meta commentary from Gaiman here. You know, Sandman may be greatly celebrated and people love Neil Gaiman now, but that doesn't mean that in two generations anybody will remember him. Mm -hmm. uh, history has shown that it's very hard to predict who will be remembered. Mm -hmm. Indeed, one of our upcoming stories here features Shakespeare, and if you'd been alive in Shakespeare's time, you probably wouldn't have called out Shakespeare as, you know, someone who would become known as the Bard. Now, as we keep going, we get to the next story, which is A Dream of a Thousand Cats. Now, I know you really enjoyed the animated version, Rowan. Mm -hmm. I want your opinion on the art here, because I thought they borrowed very heavily from this art style for the animation. Yeah, they really did. It just looks like a upgraded version of this. And I wouldn't say upgraded, but yeah, probably animated. Wrong... Yeah. yeah, sorry, upgrade's probably the wrong word. I just don't know what word to use. Now, the story behind A Dream of a Thousand Cats is essentially a, a, a cat has had a litter of kittens. They are murdered by the human that owns them because he sees them as valueless because they are mongrels and his cat is a pure breed. Mm. And she's bitter and goes through a great ordeal in the dreaming to meet the king of dreams, who, of course, is a giant black cat. Now, this is not a 
different Morpheus. This is just how cats see Morpheus. And this is an ongoing theme in Sandman that we are seeing the story of Sandman as we as humans can understand it. And in that same way, we are now getting a story seen from the viewpoint of cats as we can understand how cats think and communicate. Mm-hmm. But it's translated for us as readers. Mm-hmm. And so this is Morpheus. And Morpheus tells the cat that once upon a time, cats were giants. And humans served them and the cats hunted them. And humans got together and a thousand of them dreamed the same dream. And the cat says, so they changed reality so that it wasn't like that anymore. And Dream says, no, they changed it from the beginning of time. They didn't just change it now. They changed it so that it was always that way. And he tells the cat, if you can get a thousand cats to dream the same dream together, it can be changed back. And of course, some cats mock him, Think it, some think it's silly, but the little kitten who is the main... Uh, a vehicle for following the story forward mm-hmm. kind of adopts it. And, it. and it ends on a creepy note that I kind of love. Mm-hmm. So let's look at these themes again. Things don't have to be real to be true. It is, at least according to this tale, true that cats used to rule the world. But that was undone. And it's not just a time travel trick. It was changed that way from the beginning of time forward. Dr- Dreams inspired people to change this, just as the cat is now trying to get dreams to inspire cats. But it's true this happened, even if it was never real. And of course, we're only hearing this tale through the cat. But it's certainly the cat's truth. And therefore real to to her. And her goal is to embed this in the memory of the cats, in their consciousness so that it inspires future generations. She wants the tale she has created and lived to endure, to create change and inspire. Mm -hmm. So this cat is taking the same role as Richard Maddox, except instead of being a horrible human being, they've had horrible things done to them, but they're still seeking to make something That isn't real true. Maddox was trying to do that through their stories, also. Trying to make a reality in the reader's mind. A truth that isn't real. While the cat is trying to do it literally by putting its story into into the cat's minds and reshaping reality. Looking to inspire and have something endure. So here, the creators are a writer and then a cat. Which brings us to... A Midsummer Night's Dream. Now, this was nominated for a bunch of awards and is one of the most celebrated stories because, of course, people love that it has... I just kind of foreshadowed this a minute ago. William Shakespeare in it. And we open with William Shakespeare and his company. He's not super famous yet, but he's well-established. It is 1593, June the 23rd. They're on a country road, and they're passing a hill with this big drawing on the hill of a man. 
And basically, he's told his company they're going to perform somewhere. And the company's like, well, where's this Lord's Hall? Who? Where's the estate we're performing at? And Shakespeare sees Morpheus upon a hill. Now, remember, Morpheus ran in to William Shakespeare back when he was meeting Hobb. And they made a deal. This is the first half of the deal. Dream brings him inspiration. Remember, again, we have a deal here where somebody is seeking to shortcut inspiration. Except instead of Maddox taking possession of Calliope, we have William Shakespeare making a deal with the supernatural in the form of Morpheus. And so this has led Shakespeare to being able to write his plays. And in exchange, Morpheus has asked for two plays to be written. One now and one towards the end of his career. Both to be about dreams. The one towards the end of his career is The Tempest. And we're not going to go much into that. If you want that, you have to take my Shakespeare class, um, which I might offer online at some point, but primarily you'd have to sign up as a student of Miskatonic for it. But Will goes up on the hill to talk to Morpheus when he sees him there. And they have a discussion about everything. And his son, Hamnet, is one of the helpers for the play. Hamnet later was used as the name inspiration for the play Hamlet. And some people are surprised when they read this, when they see, you know, guys dressing up as women. But back then, women weren't allowed in the theater. Men played all the roles. And Shakespeare asks Morpheus, Dream, where are we doing this? And he says, right here. So Shakespeare turns around because he's not going to argue with whatever the hell Dream is. He doesn't know. And says to his people, we're performing here. He gets a little bit of pushback and he says, look, we practice this in fields. We can perform it in fields. And they say, well, where's our audience? Who's the audience for this? And that's when the big drawing of the guy on the hill moves and pulls open the hill, creating a portal into another dimension, and the Fae come through. Now, by now, the Fae have already abandoned the world for several centuries, as was also mentioned during the Hobgandling story, when Dream mentions it to death. And here they come, Titania, Oberon... All the creatures of fairy come spilling out, including Robin Goodfellow, who by the end of the story decides to stay behind to torment humanity and will become later relevant in later storylines, especially when we get to the kindly ones. Now, at first, the players are a little freaked out. Look, the the creatures of fairy are not humanoid. I mean, some are, like the king and queen, but most of them are completely monstrous. But pretty soon, the actors fall into their roles and perform by rote, even if some of the fae are a little confused by it. And it turns out that Shakespeare used some of the names and visages of the fae in the audience. Perhaps, you know, communicated through his dreams. In fact, one little uh, goat-headed fae goes... These are mortal mating rituals? (laughs) I mean, they're confused about what's going on. 
even if, you know, the king and queen get it. And the play proceeds, if you've ever read or seen a performance of Midsummer Night's Dream, uh, you'll, you'll catch the relevant parts. And intermixed with that performance is commentary among the characters, especially Morpheus and the King and Queen of Fairy. And we find out that his goal in doing this was that he has an affection towards the Fae. And he was sad to see them leave, and he invited them for this performance because he wanted them to see something celebrating them, and he says that this story will endure and leave the Fae in mortal memories even when the Fae are gone. So we return to all of these same themes. Things don't have to be real to be true. The Fae are leaving the world, the Fae don't exist anymore but the Fae still live on in people's memories. That, of course, directly connects to the theme of the goal of creation is memory. Uh, Morpheus is literally creating this as a play to make sure people remember the Fae. Mm -hmm. And he has literally bartered with William Shakespeare to have inspiration. Mm-hmm. The pow- and using the power of dreams to inspire. Much like Maddox, except a consensual deal. Which is always a good thing. Right. And the, the Fae in Shakespeare's play aren't real. They aren't quite like the Fae in the audience. We see that. Mm-hmm. But they use their names, their faces, some parts of their character... And so these will be the versions of the Fae to live on. It's not real, but it becomes true. It's mm-hmm. what people remember. And we get an interesting little hint in here. Mm-hmm. Now, this ties back to Calliope. Mm-hmm. Calliope is a Greek muse, and we find out that she used to be the wife of Morpheus, which mm-hmm. we're told in Calliope when they're talking. She wants to come to his realm and grieve the loss of their son, and he reviews, refuses, basically kind of implying that he's not ready yet, but not coming out and directly saying it. Reasons for that will be revealed later on in the series. But at one point, Titania turns to Morpheus and says, you know, this story, this is a new version, but I think I heard a bard in Greece sing this story long ago. So Morpheus is being a clever trickster here. Yes, maybe he really does have affection for the Fae. Maybe he really does want them to be remembered. But he's also taking the tale created by his son Orpheus, son of Calliope, and using the Fae to make sure his son's story is remembered through time. And continues forward. Aww. So there's multiple layers to that there. It's a great interweaving. Mm-hmm. Now, we know in history that Hamnet passed away uh, just a few years later. I think he was 11 or 12 when he passed. In the story here, the queen takes a liking to him. And I kind of like to think that maybe she stole him away into fairy and it was a changeling left behind who died. Kind of a pleasant thought, I think, in a way. Yeah, definitely. Now, that brings us to the last story, Facades. 
Now, facades. All of these themes that I just talked about mm -hmm. apply to facades, but in the reverse. So what we've been talking about is creators. Mm -hmm. Richard Maddox, the unnamed cat, William Shakespeare. These are the creators that these themes come from. This dream in this dream country. Now, what happens if somebody no longer dreams? What if somebody has no inspiration, no desire? That is the character that we see in facades. Mm -hmm. And, appropriately, this is underscored by the fact that dream is not in this. In fact, dreams are not in it hardly at all. We open the title to see somebody with orange skin and green hair smoking and putting out the cigarettes in an ashtray. Now, fans of the Obscura in DC Comics immediately have a guess here, but most people would be entirely clueless. And then we see this figure, which turns out to be female, uh, picking up the phone. And calling an extension at the CIA to ask about their disability check. So we have this obviously weird superhuman character. Now, the char who they don't... I think... I don't know if they ever name her under her superhero name here. But a long-standing character in the DC Universe was one called Metamorpho. He's been a member of the Justice League. He has led up his own books, all this stuff, and he had this weird body shape and could turn his body into different elements. Mm. And of course, because he was successful, they wanted to make a female version of him. So Element Girl premiered in Metamorpho number 10, February 1967, and was around for a short while, and then completely disappeared from comics until Neil Gaiman brought her back for this. And she was a CIA agent sent to replicate what created Metamorpho, and she did and became Element Girl. And now we're finding out she has not been seen because she has severe anxiety and mental health issues, and she's living on disability from the CIA. And she lives in this apartment, and we see a transition of scenes where she literally just sits on the couch staring into space through a whole day and night doing nothing. Her only human contact is talking to this guy about her disability check once a week. And when her phone rings, she panics. And she finally gets a chance to go talk to somebody. She does. It doesn't go well. She does have dreams. This is the one way that dreams show up, although not Morpheus. But she has dreams of her going into this temple and the sun god Ra reshaping her. And she says that's not what happened. There was just this orb. Well, this goes back to that theme of things don't have to be true to be real. She may have just touched an orb. There may have just been a bright light as she sees it. But the sun god Ra did reshape her into this mm. form. Mm. And he is actually the creator of this story. He only shows up for a couple panels here. But she is the creation, not the creator. Mm. The sun god Ra is. And he 
is true but not real. Mm. Gods aren't real, but they do exist. Mm. And she's reshapen. And her life is just horrible. She goes to call that one guy she talks to once a week and is told that he's been transferred. Mm. And she wants to die. And Death walks in. Well, wish granted. And Death sits down and says, Do you want to talk about it? And she figures out who Death is. And Death says, I hate to break it to you, but I'm not here for you. Mm. Somebody slipped upstairs. Mm. I just heard you crying, so I thought I'd check in on you. And she says she wants to die, but she doesn't know how. She is, she believes, essentially immortal. Even if she turned herself into disparate oxygen molecules... She thinks that she'd be alive just dispersed around the planet. Mm. She believes that she could even survive an atom bomb. She'd just be irradiated. That'd be impressive. And any hope of being able to interact with people gone. And do remember, this is pre-internet. She couldn't spend all day on Reddit forums. Uh, and become a femcell. <laughs> Wasn't ready for that one. I, you're never ready for the fem cells. <laughs> <laughs> so she asks Death, you know, please kill me. And Death says, and I'll just read this verbatim. It's not that bad. Even the metamorphi die eventually. Hey, listen, eventually everything dies. It just takes a little bit longer for you guys. But sooner or later, your morphogenic field collapses. The metaplasm dissolves and you're ready to move on. Remember Algon? He was that Roman centurion, a metamorph. Like you, he was only 2,000 years old and he died in a volcano, remember? And she goes, how do you know? And then she that's when she realizes who death is. Now, there are some notes here. Uh, only 2,000. So apparently that's young for a metamorphi to die. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this woman is done with it and it's been like, you know, 23 years. Mm-hmm. So, this is not looking good for her. No. And Death basically says, yeah, you know, Rock keeps creating metamorphi to fight the Undying Serpent. But the Undying Serpent's been dead for 3,000 years. I've been trying to tell him. I've tried to tell him that. God so, damn again, God. we have this, now a god as a creator who's reshaped a human and... This attempt for this battle that he remembers but isn't real anymore and doesn't exist. And this woman has nothing left. She's not inspired. Her dreams are only memories of what happened. Things that are true even when they weren't real. She is not looking to be inspired. She is literally a creation of memory. A creation as memory. And she doesn't want to be remembered. She doesn't want anything but non-existence. And Death says she can't do that. But this, this the title facade comes from these face masks left behind. When she attempts to look human, she is creating 
these masks that look human out of elements that eventually dry out and fall off. And she hangs them up over her apartment. She uses them as ashtrays. But under Death's guidance, she looks to the sun and realizes it's a facade. And that behind it, she can see Ra. And she asks him, and he removes the gift. So she dies. That's one way to solve a problem. And in a weird, bittersweet note, her only human contact that left her so despaired gives her a call after she dies. Mm. You know, says he was moved to another department, but he still wanted, he was worried about her and wanted to keep in touch. Mm. And death answers the phone. Because death's in everyone's business. She is. So that's dream country. What do you think? Depressing. Well, you know, there's a reason when Neil Gaiman last uh, did a collection of short stories, he called it Trigger Warnings. You know, he he doesn't believe that stories should always be happy-go-lucky. Clearly. Clearly. That was like four or three different trigger warnings for one collection. It was. Mm-hmm. I mean, only the uh, William Shakespeare story really avoided major depression there. Uh-huh. Uh, although if we'd been there and we'd smelled these non-bathing people, we might have a different opinion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, personal hygiene wasn't strong in Elizabethan England. That's all I'm saying. It wasn't. Oh, Lord, the hounds are back at it. Oh, not again. That sounds like a hungry bark, though. I think they're only chasing the students. I mean, we're kind of at the batch of students right now that know to run. Yeah. And they're pretty good at it. Mm-hmm. If anybody's ever here has ever seen Zombieland... Trust me, the students here learn the cardio part from that, from Jesse Eisenberg's opening monologue. Mm-hmm. Cardio, cardio, cardio. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, those are the major themes and elements of Dream Country. We're going to be back with another significant story arc next week. And until then, class is dismissed. Class is over, but before you leave your seats, we have one more teaching moment. New podcasts drop on Mondays and Thursdays. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and tons of other platforms, as well as YouTube. Our hosting is at comicscourse.captivate.fm, which also has our RSS feed. If you want to find our website, TikTok, any of that other stuff, constantly updated list is at linktree, L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E forward slash Prof Hamby.